You know, when you get to this time of the year, it's fair to say that this next month for some people is like a, a season of renewal. There's a, there's a kind of renewed hope, especially as you think about December 25th and what we celebrate as Christians, the, the birth of Christ and uh, a birth, having uh, been through one recently with my grandson, it, it, it has a sense of hope, like there's, there's something that's going to keep moving on. There's, a, there's like a chance for humanity, it feels like, and especially with, with the birth of Christ, you feel like, okay, that he, he has come into the world, he has changed things, and there's a sense of, of newness, and it seems like even nature itself sort of chimes in on that chorus. So uh, December the 22nd is the, is the first day where the sun stays in the sky just a little bit longer. And then it's like the, the nature is joining in to say, I'm not going to let darkness win. You know, I'm, I'm not, I'm going to run, the sun's going to run the darkness and the coldness out as we anticipate spring. And then, of course, there's January 1st, where you feel like, okay, it's a new year. Oh, you, you, you either celebrate or mourn or you're glad 2018's over and you make these New Year's resolutions. They're kind of renewals, like, Hey, this is the person I want to be. These are the habits I want to have. These are the things that I want to stop. Whatever those things are, you, you feel like you get a chance to do it. Of course, you could do it any day, but you feel like you get a chance to do it on January 1st. And I would say in here, Matthew, or Samuel 12, it's a time of renewal. This is the season of renewal for Israel, the people of God. If you look back with me in chapter 11, verse 14, just above the beginning of chapter 12, Samuel, who is the leader of the people, notice what he says, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. Let's, let's go to Gilgal. Now, Gilgal, we've mentioned this before, but you got you to gotta remember Gilgal because it comes up a lot of times in the Bible, but especially here in 1 Samuel. Gilgal is the place where when Joshua led the people over uh, the Jordan into the promised land, he stopped at a place called Gilgal. And he put these 12 stones. Remember, they got them out of the river and brought them out and, and set up like an altar, a, a, what's called an Ebenezer. So uh, Joshua said, so you set the, or the Lord said, so you set these up so in generations to come, when people might forget about what I've done, they pass by these 12 stones and say, what are these things here for? And you say, God has made a commitment to his people, and we have to remember his greatness and his commitment to us, and we need to always be renewing our commitment to him. And so Samuel picks Gilgal to bring the people back to and says, guys, we need to renew our covenant with the Lord, and he's brought them to Gilgal. And here at Gilgal, a great transition is taking place. Samuel is the last judge. And he's handing off his military leadership or governance. He's still going to be the voice of the Lord as a prophet, but he's handing off the, the governing to the king, the first king, whose name is Saul. And so we have a ceremony here that's taken place in chapter 11 and then it extends into chapter 12. And there's three things that this ceremony examines. First, it examines the leadership and life of Samuel. Then it examines the, the faithfulness of God. And then it examines actually God's people and their, their need for renewal. So we're going to take a look at those as 
Samuel guides us into these three sections. He, he examines himself first. He, he examines God's faithfulness, and he, then he examines uh, the people. So first of all, Samuel's, Samuel's examination of himself. Look at verse 2 through 4. And now, behold, the king walks before you. He's, he's saying, I'm transitioning to Saul. He's here before you, and I'm old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I've walked before you from my youth until this day. Remember Samuel, he was, he was given by Hannah at a very early age, and he lived in the temple, and he was, he, he was brought up by Eli the priest. Verse 3, here I am. Testify against me before the Lord. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Or who, am I, who have I defrauded? Who have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I'll restore it to you. And then they respond back to Samuel, you have not defrauded us, you have not oppressed us, you haven't taken anything from any man's hand. So see, Samuel, he's setting himself up on the stage, and he's saying, hey, everybody look at me. Is, is there something I've done wrong to you in any way? And today's the day I'm going to restore, I'm going to make it right. And then they say, no, you haven't done anything wrong. You, you have been a great and excellent leader. So Samuel, if you just wanted to study leadership, you could study Samuel's leadership. But I want to point out two key characteristics for Samuel, and I want them to be a challenge to you and your character. The first thing we notice is Samuel's integrity, his integrity. It comes from the word integer. You know what that is? You're a math nerd. You know what an integer is? A whole number, right? It's a whole number. Integer is a whole number. So in other words, Samuel is a whole person. He's a whole person. He's the same person, you notice in verse 2, from his youth to his old age. Here he's, he's old and gray, but he says, remember, I've been with you from my youth. So from by the time I was 5 or 6 or 7 or 12 or whatever day he seems to be pointing back to, to now he's 70 or 80 years old, uh, Men and women, you have been with me this whole time. And no matter where you intersected Samuel's life, no matter what birthday you came along, whether it was at 18 or 48 or now 78, no matter how you got to Samuel, he was always the same person every birthday. Now, it's quite a challenge for all of us, but especially if you're here and you're high school and college. Samuel wasn't saying, oh, how I wasted my early years. No, I, I was commit. I was near, remember, I was near the Lord. I heard his voice. I responded to God's voice. And I've been doing that my whole life. And, and of course, at any point in your life, you want to say, I need to renew my integrity. But if you're here and you're 15, Pray that when you're 85, you could say, look back at all of these years, 70 years, I've been the same person all the way through, no matter where you intersect. Samuel, notice in verse 3, he's the same person no matter how, who he's dealing with. Here I am. Imagine saying, just imagine you saying this to everybody who's ever knew you. Here I am, testify against me. I wouldn't want to say that to everybody I've ever known. 
but he stands up on stage and he's going to let everybody take a shot. And you notice he's the same way through, all the way through his years and all the, all the way through the people, uh, whether he's dealing with you in public or private, whether he's dealing with you as a rich person or a poor person, whether he's, he's at work or he's at home, whether he's before the Lord in church or before people in the world, no matter where you, you come to Samuel's life, he's the same person. And I would say few things are more desperately needed than that in our world today. That, that a public person, a person in leadership, they're the same everywhere you meet them. If you were just to go to the, their most private moment, you could count on their character. If you were to go to their, their most public moment, you could count on their character. You, you, if you were to go to their most tempting moment, you could count on their character. That's, that's the kind of integrity that Samuel has. Now, it's, it's certainly important for um, that character trait to be something that, that we all per- pursue, but especially in leadership and maybe most especially in church leadership. So as I was putting this sermon together, I thought, Paul, this whole sermon is about you. Uh, let's hope somebody else gets something from it. But really, chapter 12, Paul, it could just be for Paul Phillips. A, a great theologian, German theologian in the 1950s who was very popular with college students. He was preaching and he used this illustration A man of our generation has a very sensitive instinct to routine phrases. He knows the man in the advertisement is not expressing his personal conviction about the product. Instead, he repeats, like this little phrase, he repeats mechanical phrases which are intended to wear a hole in a stubbornly stony psyche by means of a constant drip. That's a great description of a commercial. A constant drip, you know, they just, they put the jingle in, it's 15 or 30 seconds, and it's trying to just wear a hole in you to say, you've got to have this. Anybody who wants to know whether a particular soft drink is really good, it really as good as the man on the television screen says it is, must find out whether the man actually drinks the stuff at home. See, everyone knows they look at advertisement and these people are just saying these mechanical phrases, but to find out whether they really like the product, you've got to go visit them at their home. And here's this German theologian's transition. Does the preacher himself drink what he hands out in the pulpit? This is the question being asked by those who have been burned by advertisement. The fact that he works hard on his preaching that he studies the Bible and ponders theological problems, this would still be no proof that he drinks his own soft drink. The question is whether he quenches his own thirst with the Bible. And if I see a breach, if I see a lack of connection between his Christian experience and his human existence, then I'm inclined to conclude that he himself is not living in the house of his own preaching but has settled down somewhere beside it and that the center of gravity of his life now lies somewhere else. So for Samuel, he was a preacher and he lived in the house of his own preaching. The the center of gravity was what he was talking about. 
And my question for me particularly, but what about you? What, where's your center of gravity? I mean, we say things here, we sing things here. But if we were to find you at work, if we were to find you in your private life, would you have actually settled down somewhere else? You've settled down sort of nearby, but not really, your center of gravity is really not on the Lord. Well, that's not the case for Samuel. He has integrity. The second thing I want to notice about his character is his, his what I'm going to call his leading strength, and that is his prayer you remember chapter 1, uh, Samuel was born in this agonizing whispered prayer of Hannah. Remember, she's desperately seeking a child, and she goes to the temple and prays. And no doubt, as she comes back to the temple every year to visit with Samuel, she tells him, Hey, son, it was here. I was right here kneeling, praying, begging for your existence. You were, you were born out of a desperate prayer, and she seems to hand off the reality to Samuel, that Samuel now knows everything that really matters happens through prayer. If you, if you want something that really matters, something that's going to have eternal value, it, it begins in prayer. It's, that's how it begins. And, and she's handed off this great gift to Samuel, and now he is known as a man of prayer. One, one of my favorite passages we looked at a couple of weeks ago, maybe, this might be three or four weeks ago, but this contrast between these two battles, and some of you will remember it, in chapter 4 and chapter 7. The people of God are always fighting against the Philistines. They're, they're the uh, stormtroopers, right? They're the evil guys in, in these passages. And in chapter 4, they go into this little skirmish and lose. And remember, they get the Ark of the Covenant and they bring it up. They think it's like a lucky charm. And when the lucky charm comes into their count, they shout. Like, we're going to win. They, they shout, and they lose. And then in chapter 7, it's as if they've learned their lesson. The Philistines have come back into their territory. Now they come to Samuel, and they're not shouting. They're pleading for Samuel to pray. And when Samuel prays, remember, the Lord thunders. I love that. See, it's not the thunderous voice of the, of the speaker. It's the thunderous voice of God that makes a difference. And they begin to realize that, and they've come to this man who somehow he's known for prayer. And we, we go to Samuel and say, Samuel, we're, we're not, if we shout, nothing happens or nothing good happens. But if you pray and the Lord thunders, then something takes place. And so they understand that Samuel is a a great man of prayer. But not only is Samuel known by the people to be a great man of prayer, Samuel's actually known by God to be a great man of prayer. Now imagine this. Samuel, everybody knows Samuel. When he prays, things happen. But God actually knows Samuel is a great man of prayer. In Jeremiah 15, Jeremiah, this prophet who happens to get this tough assignment where Israel is in decline, they're going to be captive, and he's actually praying for Israel, much like Samuel is doing here. And God says, it's, it's too late, Jeremiah. 
They're, they're going to be captive, and they're going to have to go into exile to learn certain lessons. And this is what God says Eat to Jeremiah. Even if Moses and Samuel were here, my heart wouldn't be changed. See that? Samuel's in the Hall of Fame of prayer in the Old Testament. I mean, you know how God responded to Moses' prayer, but he's saying, if Moses and Samuel were here, I still wouldn't be moved by their prayer because I've been moved by their prayer before. So Samuel is known as a whole person. Are you known as a whole person? Samuel is known by people and by God as a person of prayer. He's, it's, it's gotten ingrained to him that his shouting is not what moves things. It's his desperate prayer that moves the heart of God and then really makes things happen. And I wonder for myself, I wonder for you, if you really believe John 15, 5, where Jesus says, apart from me, what does it say? You can do nothing. See, I read it and say it and mean it when I say it. But really in my heart, I think I can do a lot. And what I need is God to kind of like bless the things I'm doing. To, to give me like a, like a, he needs to, he's like the five-hour energy drink. Like I, I just need a little boost. I'm, I'm getting a lot of stuff done, God. But if you gave me a little boost, then wow, imagine what we could do. And practically, that's how I live my life. So I'm reading this going, Paul, you're, you're talking about Christ Community Church 2.0. Tom talks so well about it. Uh, Ned talks so well about it. But are you hoping your strategy does it? Or are you hoping your prayer does it? Now, I'm not trying to minimize strategy. I think that's part of a biblical mandate. But do you see what I'm saying in terms of our priority Samuel had his priority right. He was a man of integrity and a man of prayer. The second examination we see is God's faithfulness. Now, this is chapter uh, verse 7 through 11, and we really don't have time to unpack it. But Samuel is shifting the spotlight off of him, and now he's going to say, let's remember God's faithfulness. Verse 8, remember when you were enslaved in Egypt and you cried out to the Lord and he answered... Verse 10, remember when you were in the land and you cried out because the Philistines were here and God answered. And then let's look at verse 12 together. And when you saw Nahash, the king of the Ammonites. Remember Nahash? Nahash, remember what his name means in Hebrew? The snake. Remember when the snake tried to get back into Israel and he came to you? And then you said to me, see, what you want to, if you're just reading this for the first time, you remember when you came to me when you were oppressed in Egypt, and, I, and God says, and I answered? And remember when the Philistines came, and you came to me, and I answered? Now, remember Nahash, he came, and you came to Samuel, and what did you say? We don't want God anymore. We want another king. This is a very unkind spotlight shift from Samuel to God to the heart of the people. Do you remember that you forsake God? 
And that, look what he says in verse 13. Now look at your king. It's as if he's saying, do you remember how great Yahweh is? Now look what you've chosen. I mean, I, I do feel sorry for Saul right here. Because Saul seemed to wander into becoming the king. But now he's on stage and they're say, he's saying, you've chosen this tiny little man to be your king when you had God Almighty. Do you understand the, the terrible exchange that you have made? The terrible mistake that you, you've walked away from God who's been so faithful and you're holding on to this false king. And so I want to close this here today with just three steps that Samuel guides the people through in this time of renewal. They're very simple, but I want it to be a guide for you today in your heart. As you prepare for the communion table, I'm going to give you a few minutes at the end of the sermon just to sit, we're all going to sit quietly and just have a moment of personal renewal in your own heart and mind with the Lord. There's three simple steps, verse 17, that Samuel gives to them. Is it, is it not wheat harvest? So he says, look, you've tr made this trade. Now I want to make sure you really understand the, the consequences of what you've done. Is it not wheat harvest today? I'm going to call upon the Lord. Uh-oh. Samuel's going to call upon the Lord. When he, when he calls upon the Lord, things happen. That he may send, what does it say? Oh, thunder. You've traded in God Almighty for a fake king. And now I'm going to pray that God sends thunder. Now, if you're an Israelite, you're like, oh, no. Oh, no. Thunder and rain. And you shall know. And see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, and, and asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord called, and Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel, and all the people said to Samuel, Pray, oh, pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all of our sins this evil. To ask for ourselves a king. The first step in the renewal process. And it's the step that everyone has to make. It, it has to be the first step. To see that your sin is evil. And it leads to your death. It's the first step. If you don't take this step, you, 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 can't, you really can't effectively take any other step. You can do a lot of other things, but this is the first step. Your sin, my sin, this is a hard pill to swallow. It's not a bad habit. It's not an issue. It's not, oh, it's a little chink in my character. Your sin, my sin, it's not because of my parents. It's not... Well, no, it's not really a big deal because I'm better than other people. No, your sin is an offense to a holy God. And you are the main problem. That's the thing you have to really absorb. That reality has to work its way all the way down to your soul. That you and I have made a terrible exchange. So that's a first critical step. As you take a moment... 
just think to yourself, I've made a terrible exchange. And I'm not trying to shift it off on anybody else. I'm the main problem. And if something doesn't happen, I'm on my way to death. Second, second step, verse 21, you must turn away from empty things. In the New Testament, the word here is repent. Remember, you're going in a certain direction, and Jesus and Peter and Paul, their first thing is repent. Turn around. Go in a different direction. So you've recognized yourself, and you say, I've been chasing after empty things, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let go of those things. I'm going to stop my pursuit. In the translation, the message, it says, don't stop chasing after ghost gods. You know, when you chase after a ghost god, you turn into a ghost. You chase after empty things, you end up empty. It's a very fascinating letter to a, an advice column that I read this week. It was in a New York magazine and from a 35-year-old woman writing into this uh, person who writes the advice back named Polly. And so this woman says this, I'm a 35-year-old woman, and I have nothing to show for it. My 20s and early 30s have been a twisting crisscross of moves all over the West Coast. A couple of trips abroad, multiple jobs, but no real upward track. I'm a poster child for serial monogamy. My most hopeful relationship ended two years ago. We moved into a new town, created a home together, and then nosedived into a traumatic breakup that launched me to my fifth and current city. I rationalized all these changes and rash decisions as adventurous and living an original, she says, an original life, and I have nothing to show for it. I have no wealth. I'm saddled with debt. I've made poor decisions. I've never been able to, I may never be able to retire. I have no family nearby, no long-term relationship built on years of mutual growth and shared experiences, no children. I've left most of my friends behind in each city as I've seen them move, continue to grow, deep roots, marriages, home ownership, career growth, community, families, and children. Most of my nights are spent alone with my cat. I don't understand how I landed this far away from myself. So she's just pouring out her heart. I used to think I was one who had it all figured out. Don't you, don't you know this? A 20-something, early 30s. I've got it all figured out. Adventurous life in the city, traveling the world, making memories. Now I feel incredibly hollow. In her closing comment, I feel like a ghost. Why? She chased, chased after ghosts. And she got it, but she ended, she ended up empty. And so you have to see yourself as the main problem. It's not somebody else, it's you. And you've got to recognize, I've been chasing after empty things. I've traded in God for some other person, some other thing, some other value. And even if I got those things, those things are empty. And the third and final step is you have to receive God's grace. This is the best verse in this whole chapter. Look with me, verse 20. Verse 19, remember, God, he's going to ask God to thunder, and he does. And the people get afraid, and it says, pray that we're not going to die. And Samuel said to the people, 
Don't be afraid. Oh, imagine how that washed over those people. We are hearing God thunder. And Samuel says, if I had been Samuel, be afraid. That's what I would have said. That's what I would have wanted to say. But Samuel, representing a Christ-like figure, comes and says, hey, don't be afraid. When the angel comes to the shepherd in Luke chapter 1, what is, what's the very first thing the angels say? Don't be afraid. When the angel comes to Mary, what's the first thing he says? Hey, don't be afraid. See, God is coming towards you, and he knows all of your evil. And what does he say? Don't be afraid. Say that with me. Don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. That is the best news I could possibly give you on Christmas. That God has come, and he is coming towards your heart at great speed. And if you would open your heart to him, do, then you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to clean yourself up first. You don't have to be afraid. Because God is coming with grace, and all you have to do is open yourself up to God's grace. And if that wasn't enough, look at verse 22, and we'll close here. For the Lord will not forsake his people. Why? Because of his great name. God's salvation is in no way based on my name. Praise the Lord. He's coming towards me because of his own character, because of his own love, because of his own integrity. It's incredible. And we should thank God for it. So I want to give you a minute just to consider your own character. And maybe this is going to be a minute of renewal for you as you get towards, as we move towards the Christmas season, that you, you just... Take a moment to sit quietly, some musical play, and say, God, I'm the problem. I'm the problem. And you identify, this is the thing that's empty that I'm chasing after. And you might just say, it's still attractive to me. And I, I just need you to make it unattractive in some way. And I, this morning, I'm open to your grace. That I don't have to be afraid of letting go of that thing and opening myself up to you. Some musical play, and then we'll come back up here in a moment and uh, we'll do communion.
on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he looked at his disciples and he said, this is my body, this is my blood, it's going to be given for you. You don't have to be afraid because I'm going to do something that you couldn't possibly do. Uh, the deacons will come up and usher you by rows. If you've, if you've opened yourself up to God's grace, then come. If you haven't, I would just ask you to ask yourself, what, what is the thing you're chasing after? What do you think it's going to give you? The elders can come forward and we'll take communion together.